encourage you uh, to give to our North American Missions offering, uh, our Annie Armstrong Easter offering, which goes to support missionaries in North America who are strategically placed in cities uh, to plant churches. Right now, our emphasis is on 30 different cities um, in North America, and so 100% of the Annie Armstrong Easter offering goes to support those missionaries. So I'm going to ask just if, if we'd have some ushers at the end of the service to stand at the doors um, as you leave today, and if you can, would consider giving, we'd love it. We want to give you an opportunity to do that uh, if you would. So uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, if you would please, and we're going to um, journey through a, a few passages or a few verses this morning uh, and talk about um, part of the greatest story ever told, which we're going to talk more about next week. But I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in this morning. Father, we love you. You're gracious and kind. And uh, Lord, I pray that in this moment we would all make much of you. God, that as we leave this place today, we would make much of you for your glory, for your honor, and your name, and your renown. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're, we stand one week away from celebrating the greatest event in human history. One week away. Don't you love the thunder? I mean, it's just like, wow, that is so cool. Um, just, I'm just going to act like it's there because it is, okay? So, uh, but we stand one week away from celebrating the absolute greatest event in human history. You know, in case you didn't know, it's the resurrection, just in case some of you are a little slow this morning. But with that comes um, some great opportunities for us to take the message of Jesus um, to a lost and dying world. Because we're celebrating this one event that changed everything. And it stands at the hallmark of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all people. Uh, because our faith is in vain and it's useless. And so this is a really big deal this coming week for us. Not just the crucifixion. We love to focus on that. And yes, it's beautiful and amazing. But let's face it, the truth is there's a lot of other people that were crucified. But there's only one guy who predicted he would be killed and came back to life. And it actually happened. And his name's Jesus. So it's a really big deal. And we stand one week away from that. And so I spent this week um, early on just kind of praying through uh, what I was going to preach. Taking a little break from Genesis for a couple of weeks, and uh, that's where we're normally at. And, and, and so, of course, I started reading through the, the great passages in the Gospels, which are talking about the triumphal entry, entry of Jesus, where everybody's laying down the palm branches, and that's just such a beautiful picture. But I really just, the Spirit just really began to impress upon me the need to challenge us. The need to challenge us, because we have a tendency in our life to keep our faith to ourselves. We have a tendency in our life to take our personal faith and keep it so personal that nobody even knows in this world what it is that you believe. And yet here we are one week away from the greatest event in all of history, and some of you are keeping it to yourselves, which shame on us. I mean, let's face it, one of the first things I said this morning to somebody was Gonzaga got beat last night. That was pretty big news. Those of you that didn't know, sorry to blow it for you if you were going home and recorded that late last night because you fell asleep. But the reality of it is, this is the greatest event ever. And it should motivate us. It should move us. It should challenge us. It should drive everything about us in our life because Jesus is alive. He was dead. He took all of your sin and all of your shame, yes, on the cross, yes, went to the grave, yes, but today he's alive. That's a really big deal. One person in this room is really excited about it other than me. Thank you. Appreciate that. But the reality of it is, with that means that Jesus has entrusted you and I with the message. The truth is, God could have chosen some other way to save the entire world. But yet, he comes to the end of his ministry 
And he says in Matthew chapter 28, he says, go and make disciples. He comes to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and he looks at this ragtag bunch of misfits and he says, you are to be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. He's entrusted us with the message. Now the reality of it is you're probably like me in that you don't always get the message right. At least maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you're one of those people that you can share the gospel and you nail it every time and you've led thousands to Jesus and you are a rock star. And we love that. But some of you might be like me. I was 23 years old and thought I knew everything because most 23-year-olds do. Amen? You were there once, okay? Um, And at 23 years old, I had the opportunity. I was serving as a youth pastor at Bahama Baptist Church outside of Durham, North Carolina. Don't get it confused with the Bahamas because they were worlds apart, okay? But it was Bahama Baptist Church, and I was serving as the youth guy there. And I wound up one afternoon, uh, there were two girls sitting in my office, two two girls who were in our, our student ministry there, and I was having this conversation with them. And it came about that I asked the great question that a lot of evangelists wind up asking. And the question is that if you were standing before God in heaven, and God asks you one question, and he says, why? Should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Maybe you've asked this question to a person. Maybe you've wanted, maybe, maybe you've wanted to ask that question to somebody before, but maybe you've never had the nerve. And I get that. I've, I've been in that world too where I've never had the nerve. Some of you right now are thinking, man, that is so awesome that you would go and ask somebody that question. We are so proud of you. Before you get there, though, let me tell you what happened next. <laughs> So we're sitting there, and I ask that question, that great question. I'm feeling really good about myself at this moment. I'm thinking, wow, you're about to to share the gospel with this person. Isn't that amazing? So sure enough, she answers the question, like most people, by the way, that I've had the opportunity to ask this question to in my life. She answered the same way as most of them, and she said, well, I think I've been a pretty good person. And I'm like, Oh, this is great. I mean, she didn't answer the right way, right? She, she, got, she got it wrong. And I'm sitting there going, this is, yes! So I look at her and all of my, I was in seminary, by the way, and all of my educational training and all the things I'd known, I'd been in church my whole life. I mean, I memorized as many of those Awana books that you can memorize. And I looked at her and I said, if you told me that, you're going to hell. Oh, and that was like the end of the conversation. It was like I had the chance to share the glorious gospel with this seventh grade girl who's been in church her whole life, much like I'd been in church my whole life. And she thought because she was a good person that she was going to get to go to heaven. And for some reason, I just, I remember that story. Now, the truth is, I mean, I've, I've gotten a little better at sharing my faith. I've gotten better at sharing the gospel through the years. Praise God. Some of you are looking at me like, I can't believe that guy is a pastor. Amen. And I get that. But the reality of it is, there are some people um, that I've had the opportunity to share with who are in this room today uh, and have come to faith in Christ, which is beautiful and it's right. And it's, it, it's just the greatest story ever told. And for some reason, they, God has entrusted us with the message. He's entrusted us with it. He could have saved people however he wanted, but for some reason he said to these people, go and make disciples of all nations. You go, you share, you tell, you lead them, you lead the way, you do it, and he laid it in their lap. 
Now, the reality of it is for, for us, the reality of it is for us, that we have been uniquely empowered to take Jesus to the world. Your outline today says that you have been uniquely empowered to take Jesus to the world. And I want to show you in Acts chapter 1 four different ways that you've been empowered to take Jesus to the world. Because that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal that maybe it's time for us as the church, it's time for us as followers of Jesus Christ to get this right. Because we've gotten it wrong a lot in our life. We've gotten it way wrong because some of you are like me and you don't see anything wrong that the way I answered that question 14 years ago in my life. You're like, yeah, what's wrong with that? It's true. It is true. But the problem is we've been empowered to take Jesus to the world. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, verses 1 through 8. The first account, this is Luke writing, uh, he says, I composed this guy Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, so we're not going to dig into that. But it says, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, Jesus speaking now, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, verse 6, When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Basically, this this is Jesus' graceful way of saying it's none of your business. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the world. Now, the reality of it is, in this text, you have these followers of Jesus who have witnessed his suffering, these followers of Jesus whom he has appeared to after the resurrection, and he is giving them some instructions, and he is basically saying, you are to go and be witnesses of me. You are to go and be witnesses of me. They are empowered, as you and I are empowered, to take Jesus to the world. It's, it's unique. It's not like you would necessarily think that you're empowered, but you are empowered. One of the first ways, the first way that you see that you're empowered through is through your relationship. It's through your relationship with Jesus Christ that you are empowered to take Jesus to the world. First of all, you've got to realize if you don't have any relationship with Jesus, then you're not going to take Jesus to the world. So the first way that you're empowered is through your relationship. These guys are empowered because of where they stand after the resurrection. And it's a good thing it's not before the resurrection or before the crucifixion. If you remember before the crucifixion, they're all running away because um, they're just scared. In fact, one of them, the, the, one of the closest disciples, Peter, if you remember, he ran away because he was confronted by a middle school girl. And so he was confronted, and he says, no, I don't know Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. No, you're thinking of somebody else, and he's denying him. So you've got to remember that through their relationship after the resurrection, that they are empowered to take Jesus to the world. Now, this requires a few things in our life and maybe a little change in our thinking about our relationship with Jesus. Because what it boils down to in our life is simply this. Are you a fan of Jesus, or are you a follower of Jesus? 
Are you a fan of Jesus and you want to go, yay, Jesus, and you want to stand up and you maybe even want to shout, but are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus in that you are listening to what Jesus says? And you're following the way that Jesus lived and you're paying attention to the way that he talked and who he talked to, or are you a fan of Jesus? Now let me, let me talk to you a little bit about what that means because there's a, there's a huge difference some of us right now, we love this time of year. It's the NCAA basketball tournament. Some of you filled out umpteen bazillion brackets, and you're hoping maybe to win five bucks out of one of those because you're gambling and you got a problem with it. But, um, <laughs> but it's a great time of year. I mean, basketball games started. I mean, Thursday, they're on at noon. Friday, they're on at noon. And it's like you're watching basketball like from the time you ate lunch to the time you went to bed at night, and you've been eating it up. You've been loving it. But the reality of it is you might even know a lot of information about all of the teams that you might be rooting for. You may have scouted all of the teams. You may have listened to all of the experts talk about all of the teams. And you might even have your favorite team in there, as I do. But the reality of it is we're fans. You might consider yourself to be a follower because maybe you know a little more information than the average guy does about some of the teams. Maybe because you, you know the history of a team, that that makes you a follower. But no, you're still a fan. You're still somebody who's sitting on the sidelines cheering it on as it happens, as it unfolds. You're not in the game. You don't have one thing to do with the game. You're not making a difference in the game. You're not a coach that's making a difference in the game. You are simply a fan who's sitting on the sidelines, mostly from the sofa in your house, cheering people on. And the reality of it is that's a lot of how people are approaching their relationship with Jesus Christ. They're fans. They sit on the sidelines. They sit in the pews. They're not people who are going to go make a difference in the world. They're sure not like the disciples were in Acts chapter 1, where they're given the command and the commission to go and basically turn the world upside down for Jesus. No, that's too dangerous for us. We're mostly content to be fans of Jesus, to learn as much as maybe we can about Jesus, to stuff our heads full of all sorts of information and knowledge and cheer people on. And maybe we're cheering other people on who are out there making a difference. And we're going, good job, you're great, and you're perfect and awesome and wonderful, and we're here for you to support you and basically sit in the pew and take up space. I know that's a harsh thing to say, but the reality of it is Jesus isn't calling us to be fans. He's not calling us to sit on the sidelines and to cheer people on. He's not even calling us to sit on the sidelines and cheer him on. He is calling us to be a follower, to engage in the greatest mission ever. He is calling us to be in the world making a difference there. Letting people know that there's something different about us because there's something different about Jesus. He didn't call us to sit and to soak up all kinds of information so that we become a bunch of stuffed, fat Christians. The first service got a bigger kick out of that. Y'all, I think I'm stepping on some toes. We're so full of information, but we're not pouring it out anywhere. We know all the right things to say. We know all the good Christian lingo at times, but yet we're not following Jesus. We're sitting on the sidelines. We might be cheering other people on, but that just means we're fans. 
Listen to, listen to some of these things. Fans, fans think they have all the answers. Fans think they have all the answers. Followers admit they don't have the answers. Fans think they have all the answers. You're, you're like that like I am because you're watching some games unfold on TV, right? And, and like I, I like Coach K, Duke Blue Devils. I know we're not supposed to mention the Devils. I try not to bring my Devil Cup around here uh, much. But I'm a Duke fan, and I love Coach K. I love his philosophy of coaching. I love the way he coaches. I love, I mean, he's a, he's a great leader, great motivator, an amazing guy, all of that. Um, but here's the reality of it. I'm a fan, and the reason I know that I'm a fan is because I can sit there during the game and go, Coach, call a timeout. What are you thinking? Why don't you call a timeout? You need to stop the momentum of the other team. I think I know all of the answers. I think I know better than Coach K does sometimes. And you're that way too. You're that way a lot of times in maybe your life, but just as a fan of something, you think you know the answer and you think you can do it better. And the reality of it is, you're just a fan. You're not a follower. Now, there's some guys who are followers of Coach K. I mean, they usually sit on the sidelines with them and they're in a suit. They're called assistant coaches. <laughs> they're the one that has the right to actually say, hey, it's time for a timeout. Me, I'm just a fan. These guys are followers. And the reality of it is a fan thinks they know all the answers. And so a lot of times they're going to they're gonna sound really, really intelligent. You've been around these people. They, they can list all of the doctrines and dis, dispensations of the church, and, and those words lost most of us. They can give you all sorts of intellectual knowledge. And they can, even, they can even recite maybe hundreds of Bible verses, and they can alphabetize all the books of the Bible and say them, and they can say them frontwards and backwards. They know all 66 of them, and some of them are so smart, they even memorize the books of the Apocrypha, which you don't even know what they are. But they're fans. They're people who are on the sidelines, not making a difference for the kingdom of God. And Jesus didn't call us to be fans. He didn't call us to be stuffed so full of information and never do anything with it. He called us to be followers. He called us to get in the game. He called us to be on mission with him, to be on purpose with him, not to be a fan. Fans think they know all the answers. Followers admit they don't have the answers. Sometimes, you know what, I think the best thing we can do as Christians is go, you know what, I don't quite have that all figured out yet. I had that conversation with the guy. His wife had died. This goes back last year. I was sitting in the hospital room with him, and he, he and I were talking. We had about an hour sharing the gospel, and uh, he had all kinds of questions. And I said, I looked at him, and I said, man, I said, I understand what you're saying, and I understand what your hang-ups are. I get all of that, and I'm going to be the first one to tell you I don't have all the answers to it. And I don't know that there's anybody who's going to have all the answers to it. And here's why, because his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if you think you have God figured out, by the way, people, you don't. I didn't say that to him. I'm saying that to you. And I just said, you know what? I don't know. But... Are you going to allow that one thing, that one unanswered question, to be the reason you don't come to Jesus? And I believe that man is a Christian today. And part of it has to do with, I was just willing to say, I don't know. But are you going to allow the fact that I don't know and that nobody else in this world may know to keep you from Jesus? Sometimes the best thing we can do is just say, I don't have the answer to that question. Fans like to sit on the sidelines and cheer. Followers like to get in the game. 
Followers are people that want to make a difference. Followers are people who want to step up. It might, you know what? It might be somebody who's on the scrimmage team. It might be somebody in professional sports. They have those scrimmage teams. There's people, but they're followers. They're in the game. They're making a difference, and they're not just sitting on the sidelines. Because what happens is, as a fan, as you stand on the sidelines, and maybe you like to cheer, but here's the other part of it. A lot of fans like to stand and criticize. Oh, this is such a glorious thing in churches today that we like to sit in the sidelines. We might cheer when things go really well, but man, we will be the first one to start criticizing when things go really bad. It's an amazing feat that, especially with smaller churches, they begin to criticize those churches that are growing and actually doing something and accomplishing stuff for the kingdom of God. And yet we as smaller churches, sometimes we stand and go, yeah, but they do this and they do this and they don't get that right and they don't. You know what? They're leading people to Jesus and lives are being changed. Who are we to criticize? And yet that's how we stand. That's what fans do. Fans want to criticize and not get in the game and make a difference. Because you know what? You being empowered flows from your relationship. And if you're a fan, guess what? You're not going to be empowered. You don't feel empowered. You don't want to do anything. But as a follower, you feel empowered because Jesus was somebody. And as a follower, you know the way that Jesus treated people. As a follower, you know the way that he spoke to people. As a follower, you get all that, and you're like, this is a really big deal. I'm going to be empowered that way. Second way that you're empowered, you're empowered through the message. But you got to get the message right. You're empowered through the message. It flows from your relationship with God, but you're empowered through the message. The disciples, by the way, in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, they got the message wrong. They got the message wrong. So they're, they're, they're basically here. They're hanging out with Jesus. And they ask the question, is now the time, uh, that's kind of a paraphrase, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? So that's the message they're thinking they get to go proclaim. The message they're thinking they get to go proclaim is that Jesus has come back from the dead and now he's going to basically institute his kingdom which means that the nation of Israel is going to be free, they're going to be independent, Jesus has come to rule and reign, and they're, they're, they want to be able to look at Romans and go, Ha! We're free! You can't mess with us anymore. But see, it's the wrong message. That's the message they wanted. The message they wanted was Jesus is king, which he is, but they wanted the message Jesus is king, and we're here on his right and his left, and we're going to reign and rule with him. You see, that's the message they wanted. I can almost hear them or see them as they're standing there in that room and Jesus is sort of giving them these instructions before he gets to verse 8 and they just can't wait. It's like they're just sitting there, they're waiting, they're like, oh, please tell us that now's the time, now's the time, now's the time, now's the time. Let's go. Come on, come on. It means that we're going to set up a kingdom, right? It means we're going to be free from the Romans, right? Come on, tell us it's time, tell us it's time. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. Jesus! Come on! Now's the time you came back to life! Jesus, come on, they killed you. You came back to life. Now's the time. I mean, if there ever is a time, now's the time. Let's set up the kingdom. Let's reign on your right. Come on, come on, come on! And Jesus is like, no, it's none of your business when the time is, but now's not the time. But you got to get the message right. You see, if they had gone out and started talking about that kind of message, it's the wrong message. 
What's the message that you and I are supposed to take? You see, I, I believe a lot of times we're, we're getting the message wrong. We may not be quite like them. You know what I'm saying? We might not be saying that this is about a political kingdom and freedom and all those types of things and restoring the nation of Israel. We not, might not be saying that kind of message. But we might be saying a message such as maybe the one you've seen in your life on a poster board somewhere that said, Turn or burn. Maybe that's the message you think that you're to proclaim. Maybe your message is like my message used to be in that you've got to get the answer right. That, that, you're, that all of us, maybe that's what you believe, that all of us are going to stand before God in heaven one day and he's actually going to ask the question, why should I let you in? And if you get it right, then you get to go in. It's like the secret password. And you might think that that's the message. You might think, I teach the secret passwords. I teach them what to say. That, that well, no, I'm, I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Did I get it right? Did I get it right? Did I get it right? And some of us, that's the message. Some of us, that's the message. We think that if we can teach people the right answer and they get it right in that time, then that's the message. But that's not the message. But we think it is. You see, our message isn't about condemnation either. Our message isn't about judgment. Our message isn't to try to look to people and make people look like us. Because in case you have forgotten, heaven will not be full of a bunch of white middle class people. I know that maybe in our minds we, we hope that because that's the kind of church you attend. That's not what our hope is for the church, but a lot of times we stand in judgment over people maybe less fortunate than we are. We stand in judgment over people who don't look like we do. We stand in judgment over people who don't even live like we live. And guess what? They're not Christians. We should have no expectation that they should live like we should live. None whatsoever. They're lost people. They are sinners in need of a Savior, much like you and I used to be. And somehow we've forgotten that, and we like to stand in judgment and condemnation over those people. But guess what? Jesus' message is not a message of condemnation and not even a message of judgment. The message is a message of hope. The message is a message of Jesus who came to save sinners. The message of Jesus says that Jesus came to seek and to save lost people. The message of Jesus is that he came to save those who are sick and in need of a physician. The message of Jesus is that he came to serve and not to be served. That's the message of Jesus. And somehow, in all of our self-righteousness, we've gotten the message wrong like I have, and we want somebody to get the answer right, and we want to say, yay! The Bible is very clear that there are going to be some on that day who think they're saved who aren't saved. Some of those people are the ones who think they're going to get the answer right when they're asked the question. The Bible is very clear about that. The message isn't about that. The message is about Jesus. The message is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. And guess, the, the, one of the most amazing things about Jesus, by the way, is that Jesus hung out with people who were absolutely nothing like him, and they liked him. Now, now just so we're clear, Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, 
who has every right to be self-righteous, and yet he hung out with people who were nothing like him, and they liked him. That's the message. The message is Jesus. It's not us. The message is that God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the message. The message is that he is patient towards you. Isn't that beautiful? The kindness of God. The message is Jesus. He hung out with sinners. Do you hang out with sinners or do you stand in judgment over them? Are you trying to engage them or are you trying to um, act like you're better than they are? Because that's usually how we act. You see, that's not the message though. And we got to get the message right because the message is Jesus. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is like, don't worry about the kingdom stuff. Listen, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about when, when we're setting up that kingdom. No, you don't need to worry about that. You've got to tell people about me. You've got to tell people that all of the things that I did are true. You've got to tell people that, yes, I told people that I was going to die on the cross and be handed over and that I was going to be crucified. You've got to tell people that. And then you've got to tell people that I came back to life. And they're not going to they're not going to believe you. But you got to tell them. You're my witnesses to these things. You're my witnesses to these things. Could you imagine the conversations, by the way, of the message? Could you imagine early New Testament church? I know you got to use your imagination a little bit. Early New Testament church, they're like, no, 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 man. That's, that's not how it happened. No, no, no. No, Jesus, he really healed that guy. No, I remember that one time we were talking and Jesus was, was telling us, he said he's going to be handed over to the chief priest and the elders and they were going to kill him. I thought, no, there's no way. But then it happened. And man, we were scared. Peter, man, I was so scared. That middle school girl, she came over to me and she said, hey man, aren't, weren't, weren't, you, weren't you with them? And I said, no. I was scared of her. But guess what? We were all really sad because he, he went, they, Joseph of Arimathea came and put him in a grave, and so we were really sad. We were grieving, but then guess what? He came back to life. No, really, it happened that way, I'm telling you. Listen, I know you may not believe me, but man, we were all hanging out, and Jesus showed up, you know, and then he started appearing more and more people. Man, he hung out and had breakfast with us. Could you imagine that? This guy who rose from the dead hung out and had breakfast with us. It was great. That's the message, is Jesus. He says, you will be my witnesses. The message, Jesus, you're empowered. Number three, you're empowered through the Spirit. Yeah! Holy Spirit, good Baptist people. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a minute. Because you're empowered through your relationship with Jesus. You're empowered through the message of Jesus. Now you're empowered through the Spirit, which is huge. The Spirit. I know if you're like me, I grew up in a Baptist church. We called the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost, and it scared me because I usually thought of the ghost as Casper, the friendly ghost. And so normally, I didn't want to talk about it. In fact, most of the time in most Baptist churches, we don't talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. We really think there's, a, there's only two parts to the Trinity, the Fa God the Father and God the Son. We just sort of want to skip over the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit part. But let's talk about the Holy Spirit because Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. That's a really big deal. 
The Holy Spirit. Let's talk about some of the things the Holy Spirit does for a minute. The first thing, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. You don't need to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says that the Holy Spirit has sealed our salvation. This is glorious, by the way. The Holy Spirit has sealed your salvation. That means, guess what? You can't lose it because it's not up to you anyway right? It means that, man, that's part of the message. You've been empowered with that because there are people who live in fear that God is going to take away their salvation. There are people who live in fear because they think if I do this and I don't do this and I do this and I don't do this, now they may not believe that they're saved because of those works, but they believe they're kept for salvation as a result of those works and not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the message, to give people that assurance and that comfort to say, no, you are sealed in the Spirit until the day of redemption. It's a beautiful testimony. I still use the example that I heard when I was in college. Gary Phillips was my Bible professor my senior year. Uh, He's a pastor in uh, uh, Tennessee now. But uh, he talked about, you know the verse in Scripture that says, I and the Father are one? And in that passage in John chapter 10, he says that, that we are in the Father's hand and nobody can pluck them out of the Father's hand. And then he says that I and the Father are one, Jesus talking. And so I, I've always thought of this, and I've always remembered this, that we're in the Father's hand. I and the Father are one is what Jesus said. And then we're sealed, everything's sealed through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the beautiful picture of salvation. And man, that's part of the testimony. That's part of the witness. That's part of the message. Some people need to be reassured. They need to know the assurance of salvation that they are kept because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Let's, let's talk about one. I, I sort of didn't, didn't mention this one in the first service, but the Holy Spirit has made you alive. I know. It's amazing. You see, you were once dead, but now you're alive by the Spirit. He has caused you to be brought to life. You've been born again. That's a really big deal. Because you were dead. Have you ever been dead before? You don't know what it's like, but some of you live that way, by the way. You do. He has made you alive. He equips you. The Holy Spirit equips you with gifts. Yeah, he equips you with gifts, man. He has given you gifts. Spiritual gifts, we call them. Now, I know everybody has a different take on spiritual gifts. I don't want to get into that today, but the reality of it is you have gifts. It might be the gift of exhortation, and guess what? You need to start exhorting. You need to start being an encourager. It might be the gift of evangelism. It might be the gift of teaching. It might be whatever that is. You need to start utilizing the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you because he's given you those gifts to be used. The Holy Spirit bears fruit in your life. Fruit the fruit of the Spirit. I know, you wonder where we got that. Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? I mean, those are all the fruit of the Spirit. And as you are walking in the Spirit, right, as you are following the leading of the Spirit, as you are surrendering to the work of the Spirit in your life, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. I don't always do that. You don't always do that. But it's really a great challenge for us in our life to say, let us start bearing the fruit of the Spirit because, friends, that's how the world needs to identify that there's something different about you. If you're not walking around with the fruit of the Spirit just pouring out of your life, then guess what? You're not a whole lot different than the world. If you're not somebody who is walking around in love, with joy, with peace, with patience, and I hate that one, by the way, with kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? That's the way it should look. They should look at you and me and they should say, there's something really different about you. Because Jesus is different. And the Spirit is in you and He has given you gifts and fruit. The Spirit gives you boldness. Boldness. Sometimes, I learned a lot 14 years ago in my life when I was sharing the gospel, if you call it that, with that girl. Because I've learned to stop. And I've learned to ask God to help. I've learned to stop and rely on the Spirit. Even in times, I had this, this, this past week where just just was in a conversation with somebody, just Spirit began to lead and give me the boldness to invite them to, to church and just tell them about Jesus and those types of things. And, and that's a beautiful thing when you'll stop and you'll listen as the Spirit begins moving in your life because He'll give you boldness. The Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus will never leave them or forsake them. Some of you feel alone. Some of you, you get into those conversations and you're like, ah, much like I was. And it's like, the Spirit is that reminder. He's, he hadn't left you. He hadn't abandoned you. He hadn't forsaken you. He's there. He's going to walk you through that. You've been empowered through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take Jesus to the world. You've been empowered through your relationship. You've been empowered through the message, through the Spirit. Last thing you've been empowered, the way you've been empowered, is through your witness. Now, you see, this is part of where I think we've gotten it wrong over the years because over the years we've thought of witnessing as I need to go out and witness, and so we go and we start knocking on doors, right? And somebody opens the door, and we might, we might be polite, and we might go, hey, can I ask you a couple of questions? And they're like, yeah, sure, and so we start out and we, we throw out that, you know, I don't know, you might ask some basic question, but then what we're really getting to is we want to ask them if they were to die tonight, do they know for certain that they're going to heaven? And that's what we've considered to be witnessing. Well, that's, I, I don't really believe that's what Jesus is talking about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Go knock door to door and ask people that if they're going to die today, that if they're going to go to heaven. Now, that, that tool was useful in history, not... It was useful. Now, if you try that today, by the way, the police are going to show up and probably escort you out of the neighborhood. And I'm just telling you like it really is, okay? But that's not what we mean by witness. A witness is someone who is telling the truth about a story. It's like the courtroom dramas. It's like they're on the witness stand, right? And you're, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. They put their hand on the Bible, they raise their hand, they do all those things. That's what a witness is doing. These, are, these men, women, in Acts chapter 1, they're to be witnesses and tell the truth of the story of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand. I, I understand that you haven't necessarily physically seen him in his resurrected body. Okay? I understand that. I haven't either. But we can still be witnesses of what Jesus has done in our life. You see, the reality of it is we might talk a really good game and we might have all the right answers, but the question is, the real witness that you have comes through a changed life. So how is your life different because of Jesus? It's the one thing nobody can refute in all of this world is that Jesus has changed your life. 
They can maybe talk an intellectual game with you. They can even play probably intellectual games with you. But can you tell them how Jesus has changed your life? That's the witness we're talking about in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. They're witnessing a resurrected Lord. We're witnessing a resurrected Lord that's changed our life. Your witness for Jesus is that Jesus has freed you from the penalty and power of sin. You think about that. It's part of your testimony, your story. For some of you, God delivered you from alcoholism. For some of you, God delivered you from drug addiction. For some of you, God delivered you from an abusive home. For some of you, God delivered you from whatever those circumstances are. And guess what? That's part of your story. That's part of your witness. It's so much more powerful than asking a question that says, do you know for certain that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? That's, I I get that. I've done that. I've lived that. But Can you share the testimony about how Jesus has changed your life? Is your life a witness to Jesus? Is your marriage a testimony of a marriage that's Jesus-centered and Jesus-honoring? Is the way that you parent and raise your children, is it a testimony of a Jesus-centered home? As a grandparent, is your, is your life as a grandparent a testimony of a Jesus-centered heritage that you want to pass down generation after generation after generation? You see, the reality of it is the witness in the New Testament church was extremely different than the witness that was going on in the world. Two things particularly that you notice in the New Testament church. One is that they, they valued children. Guess what? In the culture of those days, they did not value children. Children, they would have preferred to just sweep them under the rug and pretend they didn't exist. But in the New Testament church, in a Jesus-centered culture, they valued children. And children were held in such a regard in the eyes of our Lord that he said, if any of you causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it is better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the lake of fire. That's part of the witness. Part of the witness of the New Testament church was that women were held in high regard. I know, you you couldn't believe that there was a day where women's liberation hadn't happened yet. You wouldn't believe a day where they did the same thing to women that they did children. They they abused them. They they treated them however they wanted to. But when you walked into the church and you heard the teaching of Jesus on marriage, and he says... For wives to love your husbands as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for them. Now that was a completely new and radical way of thinking. But it was a witness. It was a testimony to the people who were on the outside looking on the inside. And the idea is that you are to be witnesses of a changed life. The way that you treat people is a witness, a testimony of a changed life. The way that you treat your spouse, testimony of a changed life. The way that you raise your kids, a testimony of a changed life. Is that you? Is that your life? You've been uniquely empowered to take Jesus to the world. 
you and I, through our relationship as a follower of Jesus Christ, through the message of Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, and through our witness, we've been empowered. I want to close by reading this. Over the years, I believe we've missed the mark on evangelism. We've always viewed discipleship as a process. We've developed classes and structure and knew it would take time uh, for that to play out in the life of the believer. For sake of this particular message today, it doesn't matter if those methods were right or wrong, but what's important is that they saw growing in Christ as a process and not a one-time event. Somehow, we have moved evangelism into the category of an event instead of a process. You see, I'm convinced today, and I've said this before, I believe it takes longer to lead someone to Christ today than it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. People have become so skeptical of the church. They have all kinds of questions. They've watched um, great Christian leaders kind of rise and then fall in moral decay, and all we've done at times is sweep it under the rug. And so I believe that it just takes longer because people are watching and there's so much information available on the internet that it just takes longer. Now there have been times in the past where evangelism events have worked and there's times even today that they still work. Billy Graham, amazing example of a way that that event worked in the past. And many of us in this room are products of that evangelism type of event. I know my, my family is. My grandfather, my grandmother went to an event like that and came to faith in Christ, and that was years and years and years ago. So in the past, they've worked, but for the most part, we've got to start looking at evangelism as a process and not an event. It's a process because you are a witness to Jesus Christ. You're a witness to Jesus, and people are watching you. Guess what? Your neighbors, they watched you leave this morning. And they know if you go home and you drive your car into the garage and you close the door and you never speak to them again during the week. They know that. They know that about you. They're talking about you, by the way, to your other neighbors, in case you didn't know that. Evangelism is a process. You might want to write this one down. That will incorporate your witness to influence people around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is a process that will incorporate your witness to influence the people around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You kind of see what that is? Your witness influences them with the gospel. The first century church was a place where women and children were valued and, valued and treated with dignity. This did not happen anywhere else. Our lives today stand as beacons of hope. Our families, the way we raise our kids, treat our spouses, love our neighbors, are all part of the evangelism process. The way we treat people as they walk through the doors of this building are a part of the evangelism process. The opportunities you have to interact with the world are a part of the evangelism process. You and I are being sent out into the world, and yes, yes, there's a chance that we may mess it up and tell some seventh grade girl that she's going to hell because she didn't get the answer right. But God wants to use us anyway. He wants to use us anyway. He has uniquely empowered you to take Jesus to the world. So who will you invite onto the Jesus journey this week? That may not be the language you use. That may not be the part of the conversation. But friends, when you start looking at somebody and see them the way Jesus saw them, 
It's part of inviting them onto the Jesus journey. So who will you invite onto the Jesus journey this week? Who can you be a witness to? Who can you invite to your house for dinner and let them see how you and your life and your family is different because of Jesus? Who can you ask to come next week to our Easter services to hear the greatest story ever told? And you never know, that person might start asking you questions when you take them to brunch after the service. And that person might ask you enough questions that you have the opportunity to lead that person to faith in Christ and he really starts his Jesus journey. It could happen because you decided this week to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But even if that doesn't happen, at least you love them enough to invite them onto the journey. At least you love them enough to invite them into the evangelism process that one day might bring them to Jesus. You've been empowered to take Jesus to the world. So I ask you, what are you waiting for? Let's go. And let's pray. Father, you have given us a message that is so powerful. Lord, it rocks us to our very core. So, Father, I pray that you would move in us. God, that you would bring people across our path this week that we can invite onto the journey. Lord, we're, we're, most of us in this room, God, let's just face it, God, we are way too stubborn to do it ourselves. So, God, I'm asking you to do it in our lives. Bring people into our path that we can be a witness of what Jesus has done in us. Help us, God, to make much of you, much of your name, much of your fame. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and